The theme is comfort yet again, but a little differently this time. Comfort, as you'll see from the title. Let me read the passage we'll be reading from this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in, in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also are joining in helping us through our prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Here in the second letter that we have of Paul to the church in Corinth, we know that this is not the second letter. This is the third, possibly fourth letter that he's addressed to the church in Corinth. Paul writes the Corinthian believers with a humble, a humble heart of comfort. If we were to read on, we'd see that Paul's credentials were <laughs> called into question yet again, as we saw when he addressed the church the first time in the first letter that we have in God's word. Yet even though, even though Paul holds every bit the honor, the authority and the power of Jesus' select 12 apostles, Paul doesn't flash it. Paul doesn't pop his collar, beat his chest, or flaunt his colors as an apostle of Jesus. Paul writes the Corinthians with humbly honest and transparent love, much like a father appealing to his own children. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love I have especially for you. Let's read verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. By the will of God. The word apostle means ambassador. A lot of you Bible students know this. Like U.S. ambassadors who are given the unique power and the authority to represent the president as if they were themselves the president. 
because the president can be in only one place. Remember, Jesus said, there are many more things I have to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and he will open up your eyes. He will give you understanding like you haven't had yet. And the Holy Spirit isn't limited. Jesus constrained and confined himself to human form. So when he left, his grace was truly amplified through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. All this to say, we do have 12 apostles. Now, Rick teaches on this, and I would encourage you to go look at this. There is an apostolic gift, and there's an apostolic gifting. The Latin translation here for apostle is misio, which is where we get the word missionary from. There are only 12 apostles of the church. Jesus is 12, minus one, and then add one, Paul. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But there are people who are called with an apostolic gifting. We call them missionaries who are sent out. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles. The Greek word is apostelos, and Latin is misio. Now, where Jesus is 12 hold the official office of apostleship in the church, missionaries, like I said, possess an apostolic gift. But I'll I'll stop there. I would encourage you, if you want to know the distinction and want to go deeper into that, please go see, listen to Rick's teaching on that. But would you entertain me for a a minute and turn over to Acts chapter 9. Keep your thumb there in 2 Corinthians. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Because Paul is addressing the Corinthians as an apostle. I just said he's not popping his collar, but it kind of sounds like he is when he starts the letter out this way. We'll just start at verse 1. Oh, that's Romans, not Acts. (laughs) Forgive me, I just got a brand new Bible. I love it. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Disciples, literally, not just the 12, but the followers of Christ went to the high priest, who's part of the Sanhedrin, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called the Christians way back in the beginning, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias said, here I am, Lord, which should always be our response. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So why does Paul address himself as an apostle to the believers in Corinth? Don't they already know? Acts 9 shows Paul was no self-made man. And he has to constantly, throughout his ministry, remind others over and over who he is, where he came from, and who he is today. He was, make no doubt about it, personally appointed by Jesus. It wasn't just a dream. Jesus encountered Paul personally. Paul, like an ambassador, representing the United States, Paul is now representing the king of the universe, and he was imbued with unique power, unique power and authority to represent Jesus as one of Jesus' select apostles. Again, though, don't the Corinthians already know this? This is the second letter we have. Paul's already said this to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some letters of, or letters of commendation to you or from you, Paul was the, the, the guy that God called to plant this body of believers in Corinth. He's like, guys, don't you know? God used me to help you come together. On Paul, I'm sorry, on paper though, Paul, setting aside the clear anointing God given him, Paul was head and shoulders above the rest of the apostles. In Philippians 4, verse 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. By the way, the word Pharisee literally means set-apart ones. The Pharisees considered them a sect, themselves a sect of consecrated ones. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But instead of peacocking or revealing, this was in Philippians, instead of revealing his resume, Paul has this attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, continuing in verse 2. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested, revealed that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. I'll put in there, not with the credentials of man, but with the anointing and the appointing of God himself, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He goes, brothers, sisters, do you really not know me? Do you forget who you are? Do you forget our relationship? He didn't address them to pop his collar as an apostle. He addressed himself this way because he comes in humble submission as a sent one of God Almighty. But he comes to them with the humility of a father's heart. He loves this church. Continue with me. Go back to Acts, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, I lost my place. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read the second half of this verse. He says, To the church of God, 
which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So in case you didn't know, a little geography for you, Corinth was and still is a city on the south side of Greece's Isthmus. Say that word, Isthmus. <laughs> it was destroyed by Rome. Rome came in and destroyed them, and then later on rebuilt this city as a Roman provincial city. It was the capital province city of the region of Achaia, which, by the way, is Greece. You see Achaia in the Bible? It means Greece, the region of Greece. So Paul's not just writing to the church in Corinth. He says, this is to you in Corinth, but it's for all the brothers and sisters throughout Greece. Now, Paul calls these people the church of God. Think about that for a second. He comes in, writing them, an apostle by the will of God to the church of God and saints. He's using some big, ter big terms, big meaning, huge implication. Jesus first uses this descriptor, church, to identify a certain group, which makes sense considering Jesus, after all, is the one who created this new group of people. Matthew 16, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, a.k.a. the Messiah, a.k.a. the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, and he further on responds, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, which is death, the grave, will not overpower it. I wanna share this just because I think there has been so much confusion and twisting of what or who the church is. But the word church, many of you know this, is ecclesia. It's two words put together and it's called, it means called out from. I'm gonna paraphrase what Jesus just said in Matthew 16. Upon this confession of trust and belief in me that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build the assembly of my called ones. That's the church. The church isn't an institution. The church isn't an organization. The church isn't a what. The church is a who. I'm looking at some of the church this morning. The church is made up of people who've been called out from living like the world to now be set apart, consecrated, sanctified. We'll get there in a second in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 set apart to live as saints. What? Some of you have a different church tradition? Wait a minute, only certain people are called saints. According to God's word, anyone's, anyone who's part of the church is considered a saint. We'll get there in a second. But the way that we are called to be a part of this assembly of God's called ones is when we confess with our mouth, and I say this live stream for people watching, if you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're wondering, how do I start this? I believe everything about him, but I don't know how to start it. Simple, Romans 10, 9, that you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Lord means master. Let's not forget that. He's the master. He becomes the master and commander of our lives because he's the savior of our souls. Now, addressing the word saint, he calls them the church of God and he calls them saints. Man, Paul, <laughs> are you sure? I've, seen, I've read some of your, your writings to these people in Corinth. They don't sound so saintly. 
Well, hang on a second. Again, Bible students, and, and I think Rick has said this a lot lately, saint is the word hagios, which means holy ones. Give us some context, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, literally set apart and made holy, in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, not by performance, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. If you are a Christian, you have given your life to Christ, you follow him now, he's the Lord of your life, you are part of God's called ones and you are one of his holy ones. Remember that identity. When you don't feel holy, he sees otherwise. He's also sanctifying us, but that's a teaching for another time. Point being, sainthood is not achieved. It's simply received. Sainthood's not achieved, it's received. How? By entrusting yourself to Jesus. What have we, this last year, been entrusting ourselves to? What are we entrusting ourselves to this morning? Where are our thoughts? What do we find security and comfort in? That will reveal, to more or less, a degree of where we find our identity. Here's your first point, if you're taking notes. I've got kind of two sub-points, and then I'll, get re I'll really launch into it in here in just a minute. First point is, Jesus anoints us with identity and gives us community. Jesus anoints us with identity, and he gives us community. We're made holy by Jesus when we receive his adoption. So we don't have to do it. We just have to choose to submit and surrender under his authority. You do that, you come to him as a child. And you don't have to do anything to warrant the love of your father. He loves you just because you're his. First, I'm sorry, moving on to, to verse two. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my desire for all of you, all of us. Grace to you grace to you, peace, peace on you and your homes from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. How does Paul extend grace to these Corinthian believers who haven't shown him the same as we see throughout the letter? Well, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. We could use some of that, right? sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not arrogant or proud, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called, there it is, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing Paul blesses these believers because Paul's convinced of his own identity. It has really little to do with who they are and how they treat him. It has everything to do with who he is and how God treats him. My brother Les was sharing with me, you know, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if we hear things coming out of our mouths and we go, ooh, that's not good, chances are there's a lot more not good in there that hasn't come out. Abundance of the heart, which also means if someone gives you a subtle gesture of compliment or whatnot, they're probably thinking more than they're telling you. All that to say, 
Paul is able to do and say what he does to these believers because of who he is in Jesus, because of what he believes Jesus has said to him. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, notice, not driven by ambition or our own opinions or thoughts, but led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Paul's led by God's Spirit. He's not driven by his own soul. So how Paul treats others isn't based on how they treat him. I've said this already. It's all according to God's truth and God's desire. I believe it's Paul who says, let your words be seasoned with grace. And we're not into January, and I don't have a New Year message for us. But I, that, that shouldn't change. That should only increase from grace to grace. As we continue to walk with God, we should be more compassionate, more forgiving, and desire to encourage, strengthen, and comfort each other more so. Philippians 2, 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's, let's let God's calling and his spirit influence how we treat each other this coming year. Let his word, not everything else. I won't even waste time with all the, what are the other everythings? If it ain't here, then take it with a grain of salt. Let his word inspire your spirit Renew our minds so that we might speak with the breath of God over God's people and bring his good word of great joy to the world that needs it right now more than ever. So your second point is, children of grace, bless others with grace. This isn't a self-help, this isn't a feel-good point, it's just the truth. Children of grace, bless others with grace. I'm looking at a lot of people here who have raised children already. It's always interesting when Cam and I uh, talk with older folks and they'll pull us aside and say a, a compliment to us um, about our kids. Because you know, not always, but a lot of what our kids have and who they are comes from us as parents. I won't go on a tangent if you're going, oh, well, wait a minute, what does that say about me? My kid's not doing so hot. Hang on, remember, Adam and Eve were God's kids. <laughs> so it's not a reflection of your worth or value, but just... Bear that in mind. We're made in God's image. When we live according to God's image, that means we give grace to others because we are children of grace. Paul also extends peace. Peace. This is where we get the name Irene. Irene. Every time I hear that word, I think of the movie Black Hawk Down. Irene, that was the name of their operation going into Somalia, Mogadishu. This is where we get the name Irene. Peace and Irene. The word literally means quietness and rest. I never knew that. Quite frankly, Irene never stood out to me. I was like, okay, Irene. But when you understand what it means, wow. Is your soul quiet and at rest? Not in a comatose, at rest. How are our souls? Go on to verse three with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Let that sink in for a second. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Blessed be the God is a euphemism that literally means praise be to God. 
Paul's blessing God by praising God. How do we treat praise in this gathered assembly of holy ones? Some of you are like, I know the Bible says make a joyful noise, but kind of lacking joy this morning, Jake. Or, I know that's what God says, but have you heard me sing? I have told my kids over and over, Cam and I love nothing more than to hear them sing, unencumbered, without care or concern of what other people think, as if they were the only one in the room. It blesses us. You know what really blesses me, and I've told my kids, when I stumble upon, I come down the hall and I overhear them singing by themselves in their room out loud and they're singing songs of worship to God. Man, bless my soul. Now, I read this and I go, wait a minute, how do you bless the one who all the blessings come from? How can you give something to someone who's got everything? By praising him. By praising him. I love to cook, and I love to cook a meal that I can tell really satisfies people. And it means so much to me when I can see or I can hear their satisfaction as they take part in what I present. Good sound to me. It's a good sound. I don't want to hear moaning. It gets a little weird at the table. But when I watch, when, when the table goes quiet because people are satisfied from what's been presented, and then... My father-in-law is not a man of many words, but the words he uses are very intentional. And he almost every time gives me a compliment. I know that he means that. Blessing God is to praise God. We need to consider how we treat gathering together in worship. Remember what it's about. Remember who it's to. You don't have to sound pretty. You just gotta mean it from your heart. The Father knows. How can we come under the tutelage of God's word when we won't position ourselves to praise him? It helps get our attitude in line with coming to him in a way that we can actually receive from him. Paul continues the praise with the father of all mercies and God of all comfort. All mercies, all comfort, God. Mercies literally means pity. Now, hang on a second. This pity isn't from pride, though. He doesn't look on us with this condescending, patronizing pity. He looks on us with a compassionate pity. Again, I'll defer to my family I, with our kids. Ezra fell. She, was, she just got roller skates for Christmas. She has hard, The fact that she came in this morning without them on is a miracle. She loves them. And I, I love watching her enjoy the gifts that Kim and I got her. Remember, that's a reflection of us. Have joy, thanksgiving, and use, employ the things that God has given you. It gives him a blessing. But mercies means pity. She fell, and her eye, thank the Lord, <laughs> she fell and hit the corner right here. Right, yeah, really hard. I can see some of your faces. You've already got pity for her. Oh, that poor little girl. Yeah, we heard she was crying. I was crying. Cam was crying. No, I don't cry. Real men don't cry. Just kidding. It's pity from compassion. Psalm 86.5, for you, Lord, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And here's the word again, abundant 
in loving kindness. The word loving kindness is chesed, which is grace. To all who call upon you. If a little girl in roller skates falls and hits the table and no one's in the room, did she ever fall? If we weren't there to hear and see it happen, you better believe our little girl would come to us crying, Mommy, Dad, I hurt. Call upon him. This has been a season where the Lord has constantly, lovingly, but firmly gone, Jacob, you're hurting. Jacob, you're grieving. Jacob, you're swirling with thoughts in your head. Call on me. Talk to me about him. Show me respect when you talk to me, but speak plainly. Let us sit down and reason together. Call upon. Now, comfort is the other word. So he, he gives us this compassionate pity. He's the father of all of that and the God of all comfort. In this sense, the word comfort means less, uh, I think last time in Isaiah 40, I likened comfort to a mother, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, like a mother tenderly nursing her children. It has less of a connotation of a, a motherly comfort and more of a fatherly comfort in this context. It carries a sense of strengthening encouragement. This comfort still soothes, no doubt, but it soothes by strengthening and encouraging. Rhetorical question, how do we soothe someone when we can't rescue them out of pain, when we can't spare them or help them avoid hardship? They're in the thick of it and they're gonna continue. How do you comfort someone in that? It's simple, and we've all done it here. We encourage them, encouragement, comforts us in our affliction. Notice the wording here. It's not out of, it's in the midst of. It's through. It doesn't rescue us out of, but it gives us something to be able to go through. Carry on with me. Um, last part of verse three. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. The word for comfort is periclesis. And I, I kind of wrestled through this one. I remember reading and I went, periclesis, pericleo, Holy Spirit. I'm like, Cam, it's not a what, it's a who. And she's like, no, I think it's a verb or an adjective. I'm like, well, well she's the English, or English, the English major. I'm just a Bakersfield boy, so what do I know? But I couldn't deny the fact that periclesis sure sounds a whole lot like another word, which, funny enough, periclesis here, the word used for comfort, gets its name, comes from, is derived from the word parakaleo. Jesus promised in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, parakaleo, that he may be with you forever. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the parakaleo, the helper. Interestingly enough, in the King James Version, they don't translate the Holy Spirit as the helper. You know how they translate his name? The comforter. So maybe I'm right, Cam. Maybe this Bakersfield boy knows a thing or two. Anyway. There's a striking similarity. So is comfort, again, I, I ask the question, is, the, is comfort a noun or a verb? Which is it? Is comfort a person or is comfort an action? And I'm gonna have to quote less on this one. 
It's not either or, it's both and. It's a yes. Now the word here is used as an action verb, but hang on a second. So my wife is right. I'm not saying I'm right and she's wrong. No, you're right. You are right, Cam. I was wrong. Last week, Rick taught us from Isaiah 9-6 in our Christmas Eve Eve service, right? His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Eternal, Prince, Peace. Do we remember what Rick said about these? These aren't superlatives. They're not descriptions. These are names of Jesus. He is wonderful. He is eternal. That's who he is. Back to my question, is Periclesis a person or an action? When God comforts us, it comes from who he is. It's not something he has to pull on or withdraw from. It's him. The father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. Comfort exists because he is comfort the comforter. He comforts because he is comfort. Now, the difference is when we comfort each other, we're not the source of comfort, which is why after a while doing ministry with people, man, I got to refill my tank. Until, but pretty soon, the more I pour out, I'm, I'm pulling from the dregs. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir. We've all been in that situation. We give and we give and we give. Parents, you give, you give, you give, and you're like, I gotta get a drink of water myself or I won't have anything left to give others. Give you another example. Sorry to pick on my kids. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> this week, I don't know what my, my, my son did, but he accidentally hurt Ezra and it really hurt. And she was crying, she was, oh. And I look at him and I could tell, he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, son, you're not gonna get disciplined for it. It was an accident. But, you know, comfort her. And he's here and she's over there. He goes, I'm sorry, are you okay? He kind of looks at me like, is that good enough? (laughs) He's learning how to comfort by the way Cam and I comfort. We're learning how to comfort because of who he is and how he comforts. So I told you to go over and give your sister a hug. If you got hurt, what would we do with you? walks over. He's feeling embarrassed on the spot. He's got kind of a snicker. I'm like, okay. He's like, (laughs) ask her how she feels. And when they get into arguments and they feel really hurt by each other, I have them look at each other in the eyes. You know what I'm talking about, right, Judah? Yeah. Look each other in the eyes. Don't look at me. Just listen to me. Tell each other I forgive you. They start, before they're done, they're laughing, they're giggling. You can't hold a grudge when you look in someone's eyes, you tell them sorry, and you actually have to look them in the eyes and talk to them face to face. Panim, panim, in the presence of the person. We've also been looking at that through Rick's teaching. The point is, we have to learn to comfort. We have to withdraw from something to give it. He is it. Remember that. All of this, it's learned and it's received. Who did God learn and receive mercy and comfort from? He didn't. We give what we have. So maybe if you're feeling like you're lacking, maybe you gotta go back to the source. What do you feel like you're lacking this morning? 
or what you've lacked in, in a few weeks or a month. Whatever it is you're lacking, go to the source. He's the source. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't abandon us. Here's your next point, and this is where we're really gonna dive into comfort. Comfort is a person. Comfort is a person. You're not alone. You might feel alone. That song, Waymaker, even if I don't feel it, you're working. Even if I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop. He never stops. We are not alone. Those of us who have received him, his salvation for us, we have confessed and believed in our hearts that he is the Lord, and he's the savior of our souls. He's the lover of our souls. We look for comfort usually, we look for comfort like an escape from our circumstance. That's what we think of comfort. I know I have. I know I often do. When I want comfort, I want an escape. This is hard and painful. Help me get out from it. But comfort, true comfort, hear me on this, is ultimately experienced from a person, not our situations. Everyone's looking at 2021. I think a lot of us have thought about this and heard it. I know the first time I heard it, I was like, like a dog listening to a high-pitched sound. I can't wait for 2021 and all this will be over. Huh? <laughs> How do you figure? What is a magical end to what we've experienced this last year? January 1st doesn't all of a sudden change everything. But remember this as we go into the new year, the situation may not change or change quickly like we want or change the way we want. But we still have comfort in our affliction. I'm getting ahead of myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, second part of verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Listen to how David describes comfort. I quoted this a couple weeks back. I don't know why, because it's very popular, but it was never a passage I just felt drawn to. The older I get, I guess the more mature I get, the more I'm like you guys, because I heard a lot of you quote this. The older I get, the more it means to me. Psalm 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Here's what's truly radical about experiencing this comfort. God's spirit decidedly led David into the presence of his enemies. He didn't skirt around them. He didn't pull them out. He put them, thrust him right into the presence of his enemies. Not only that, he said, and while they're all surrounding you, I'm gonna have a table spread for you. We usually don't think of war and conflict at the same time we think about the food networker mowing down on a good meal. God's presence gives David comfort in the presence of his enemies. God's comfort destined Daniel for the lion's den. God did that. God helped Esther 
enter into the threat of death against her and her people. God didn't spare his people from this. He was the active agent putting them in it. Remember Job? God says, Satan, what you been up to? Oh, I've been going back and forth across the earth, looking to make some trouble. And what does God say? Hey, have you noticed my son down there, Job? God, God put a target on Job's back. I think a lot of us have asked, God, where are you? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? What if I said it was for comfort's sake? Ironic as that is. Anyway, God's comfort was experienced because of pain, because of tribulation. Without the pain and tribulation, there would be no comfort. Paul says we're comforted in our, here's the word, affliction. Rick has taught on this a lot, affliction. The word is philipsis. Philipsis, it means burden. Have you been burdened? It means persecution. Maybe you face some of that lately. Trouble, and it also means literally tribulation. Romans 5, verse 3, Paul writes, We also exult in our tribulations, philipsis, affliction, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is why the Lord just keeps bringing back to me. It's the Word and the Spirit. The Word of God that we love as a fellowship here at the bridge, we devote ourselves to, to dissect and understand better, is empty and ineffective if we don't go to the comforter to enlighten. The Word of God cannot be stripped and separated from the Holy Spirit. The giftings and power that Jesus used and manifested was because the God of comfort brought the helper, lighted on him like a dove, and empowered him to do supernatural things so that the word of life could effectually be supernatural in people's lives. We need the Holy Spirit for this word to come alive. We cannot divorce the two because they're undivorceable. God cannot deny himself. That being said, God allows and he even leads us into. I said it before, I just wanna say it again because I think we need to remember this. He even leads us into tribulation. He will lead us into tribulation. Now pray that he doesn't lead you into temptation, but tribulation, you don't have to ask for that, he will because of what it develops in us. At the end of verse, verse five, Paul says, hope doesn't disappoint, hope. This world is empty without hope because for all the affliction, most of the world doesn't have the comfort of God. In the end, tribulation for believers, hardship and challenges actually strengthens our hope. It doesn't weaken our hope. Now, if you're going, that's not true for my life, Jake, then I would say to you, because I have experienced it this last year, then if we are feeling weak on our hope, then we are not resting in the comfort of the Spirit of God. It worked for David. It worked for Daniel. It worked for Esther. What about that woman, her and her son? They had enough flour and oil to make one last cake. And they were gonna eat it and then die. And Elijah shows up and he goes, what you got? 
well, I've got enough food for my son and I, but then we have nothing. Give me everything you've got, okay? And then God supplies their need. And then Elijah says it again and again. And it was through the affliction that this woman and her son experienced that not only were they able to serve a servant of God, which God holds in high esteem, but they were taken care of in abundance. They had leftovers. Read the story on your own time. The verse isn't up there, so go search the word for yourself. Powerful story. But it wouldn't have happened had she not been resting on God, depending on him. Logically, we as family caretakers were like, sorry, door is shut. You can't come in. I don't have much, and I can't share it with you, let alone give you all of it. The Holy Spirit does things beyond what we can comprehend and understand. Are we listening to him? Now, you might be saying to yourself, we're talking about philipsis. We're talking about tribulation. Wait a minute, Jake. I've heard Rick teach on this. Are you saying the church will go through the seven-year tribulation described in Revelation? Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Great is the word megas, which is where we get the word mega. That sets this tribulation I just read, it sets it apart. It's not the tribulation we're talking about this morning. Every human goes through trials and tribulations. If you're going through them, that doesn't mean you're cursed or not chosen, not called, not one of God's children. It's just a fact of life. Everyone will go through it, but not everyone will go through the great tribulation. And that choice is up to us. So what's the difference between Jesus' affliction and the affliction of the last days? What's the difference? It's a good question. Jesus suffered the affliction of God's wrath for our sin. The wrath that's poured out on this Christ-rejecting world at the end of days he took it on himself at the cross. He took the wrath of God on himself, so we don't have to. In the great tribulation, though, the world will suffer God's wrath because they rejected Jesus' sacrificial salvation from it. Those watching across the seas, if you're watching it and you don't know Jesus, now is the time for salvation. Now is the time to accept and receive his goodwill towards you, that he would comfort you and spare you from the wrath to come. What side of God's wrath are you standing on? Jesus suffered affliction so he could offer us comfort. And here's your next point. As we see in verse four, we're afflicted so we can comfort. We're afflicted so we can comfort. Brothers and sisters, Church of God, saints of the Most High, we're not martyrs of affliction. We're creatures of comfort. Do people sense comfort when they're in your presence? Do they get comfort when they're in your presence? I've said it many times, and I like to joke with Rick. There's a story I won't say right now. But being a victim, playing the victim, wallowing in self-pity has been something that the Lord has had to work out of me. We're not called to be martyrs. We're not, we are not victims. We are victors in Christ who set us apart, who empowered us with the Spirit so that we might inherit the blessing and be a blessing to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. 
But just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. Coming to Christ doesn't spare us affliction, conflict, suffering. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Some of you know what that means right now. Verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Suffering, affliction is part and parcel of the deal. Sufferings come with the territory, but as we share in suffering with Christ, that means we also share in his comfort. And you can't experience that profound, powerful comfort without going into the pit, without going into the dungeon without being left in the den, entering the valley of the shadow of death. Otherwise, at some point, it's just gonna sound like a nice platitude. We can teach a good word. I can expound with incredible intelligence. But if I haven't experienced it, man, I haven't gotten the full sense yet. My wife reminded me this last week when she found out what I felt led to teach, and she said, do you remember over a year ago you asked Rick to come aside after the teaching during the altar call, and you were praying and asked God that, did I ask God for suffering? <laughs> Why did I ask that? But you know what? God knows my heart, and you don't have to worry about going through suffering if God is, uh, he's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant taking us to task, testing us to see whether we'll fail. He tests us to prove us in his will. Anyway, in Acts 5, Jesus' apostles are arrested because they've been teaching and preaching about him. They suffer because they follow him, they talk about him. They're thrown in jail. But then an angel releases them from jail. Can you imagine here, police come in the building, they arrest us and throw us in jail, and then supernaturally, God opens it up, cameras shut off, and we walk out free as a bird? What would you do if you got that freedom? I'll tell you what they did. They didn't run away. <laughs> they, they went back, back into the heart of the darkness to keep on teaching and keep on preaching Jesus where they were arrested in the first place. They weren't looking to catch a car, but they were following the Spirit's logic and not their own understanding. So when the Sanhedrin find the arrested apostles who had escaped, <laughs> they bring them back to interrogate them and intimidate them, and they flogged them. They beat them, and then they, they urged them. They commanded them to stop 
sharing Jesus, Acts 5.40. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, weeping and moaning and so, no, it doesn't say that. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus despised the cross. He hated everything that he went through, but he did it for the joy set before him. He did it out of his love for the Father, and so he obeyed the Father to the point of death, and he did it with comfort and joy in his heart the whole time. We must remember, comfort comes in affliction. It comes in the midst of our affliction because it's not a it, it's a who. Be encouraged. If you're in affliction, you're not alone. Jesus looks on the afflicted. Question is, are we gonna call out to him? Are we gonna call upon him? John 16, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, philipsis, but take courage, I have overcome the world. I got a new watch for Christmas and I'm keeping track of time. I'm good. All right. Here's your next point. Affliction with Christ creates comfort. Affliction with Christ, that's important, creates comfort. Look at verse eight with me. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. But in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Man, amen. Take comfort in that truth. The affliction in Asia was almost unbearable for Paul. Almost unbearable. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.15 to, to the young pastor Tim that all in Asia had turned away from him. Most of the churches Paul had a part in and planting were in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. Paul would later recount in 2 Corinthians 11.23 just what he endured. Beaten times without number often in danger of death. Five times I received the, from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. What does that mean? Go listen to Rick's teaching. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, danger among false brethren, and I hear danger, danger, <laughs> Will Robinson. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. You feel sleepless? He says, in hunger and thirst, <clears throat> often without food, in cold and and exposed to the elements, apart from such external things, there is daily the pressure of me of concern for all the churches. It's been a hard time for us just within this fellowship. Can you imagine a guy who's got a number of them spread throughout a region that he has to get to by foot or boat or donkey? Man, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul calls everything I just read light and temporary affliction. What are you smoking, Paul? 
It's not. How? How could he consider that light and temporary? How could God consider what we are going through light and temporary? Because it's compared in comparison to the weight of eternal glory. It's as if it doesn't even exist. And glory that's coming and coming soon. Are you on that glory train? Are you getting ready for Jesus to call us and to take that train to cross over Jordan? to be lifted up and taken up home to be with the groom. Philippians 3, 8. More than that, I count, Paul says, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all lost. For whom I have suffered, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, who is comforter, (coughs) prince of peace, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A lot of people here I see have been married or are currently married longer than I have, and you know full well the bond that you form with your spouse when you go through thick and thin day in, day out, year after year. No matter what's going on in your marriage, don't give up. Keep depending on Christ together and he will strengthen that bond of fellowship. And for those of us who have been separated from our loved ones, and I've heard stories this last year, I don't know what it's like. I cannot imagine. So I'm not gonna act like I do but we all know someone who does. He longs to be with his bride, and one day he's gonna take us home to be with him. Know this, when you are suffering in agony here, he feels it currently. He is constantly in intercession for us. When we embrace suffering that become, here's a qualification, when we embrace suffering that comes because of our obedience to Jesus, then we begin to personally experience the revelation of God's power at work. Paul said, I didn't come to you in eloquence of speech, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, John 2, 24 through 26, knowing ahead of time the agonizing suffering his Father would soon put him through. Jesus knew. It says that the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, before the universe existed, he was preparing himself for affliction. Jesus set his hope on his father's heart. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. What's ironic about that? Paul, God said to Ananias, Paul is my servant and I'm going to show him what he must suffer for my name's sake. You know where Paul was arrested? In Jerusalem. And you know what Paul did? He was given a vision by the Lord that he had to go to Jerusalem. And he was told in advance, when you go, you will be arrested and that will be the the beginning of the end of your life. And Paul didn't dodge the bullet. He didn't look for a different circumstance. He didn't run away. He went right into the valley of the shadow of death. 
because he had the confidence of his comforter. Luke twenty two forty two. 42, Jesus set his hope on his father's heart, not even in himself. Think about that. Jesus didn't even hope in himself. He hoped in the father constantly. When Jesus came and they asked him who he was, he always pointed people's attention to the father. When you are in affliction, when you are wronged, when you are defrauded, when you go through hardship, live your life in such a way that people will see your good works because you're children of grace so that they would glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Jesus set his hope on the Father's heart, Luke twenty two forty two. 42. He, he cried out in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, the cup of wrath. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 44, and being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jake, this is days after Christmas, and you're talking about the Easter message. Cam found out <clears throat> late one night, I think it might have been the night before Christmas, Christmas Eve, I felt compelled to turn on a movie called The Passion of Christ on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and she said, Why, why'd you do that? And I said, oh, and I didn't get through all of it. It was late, and I think I got what I needed. But I, I told her, I said, I think the Lord just wants me to put his birth in context to his life and death. The reason we celebrate his birth is because of his death for us. I'm getting ahead of myself. I gotta be careful here. Why did Jesus go through all of this emotional and mental and physical and supernatural pain and suffering? What's the point? Here's the next point if you're taking notes. Jesus' affliction gives us comfort. His affliction gives us comfort. Comfort's a person. We're afflicted so we can, com can comfort. Affliction with Christ creates comfort. Jesus' affliction gives us comfort. We need to remember that our own lives are not our own, actually. Sometimes, sometimes our affliction isn't even about us. Swallow that horse pill, Jake. It's got nothing to do with you, Jake, God says, but I'm the one going through it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for Job. Job's story of affliction still inspires us today. If it hadn't been for what God intentionally afflicted his servant Job with, you and I would not have the message of hope. Job cried out, if only I could have a man, I could, I could meet with God face to face in my affliction, that I could stand before him as a man stands before another man in court. Job, that was his heart's cry, and it was fulfilled through Jesus. If you're crying out in pain, you cry out in pain. Keep your face always towards God, which is why Job was a blameless man, because he didn't turn his back on God in the midst of affliction. He pressed in deeper to God, and God honored that. And now we can talk personally in the presence of our Holy Father in a way Job didn't have. Amazing. Keep in mind that while Jesus suffered on the cross, he still had comfort. How? How can you still have comfort in such agony? Because, as I've already said, Jesus wasn't alone. When Jesus was baptized, came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon him in power. And I will say this because this has been promulgated and it's popularized and some of you might believe it. But in Scripture, according to God's word, 
father never turned his face away from his son. If he did, then the triune nature of God was violated. And we know from scripture that God cannot deny himself. He had to punish the sin. But remember, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. So the flesh was put to death, but the spirit brought life. 2 Corinthians 1.11, last verse here. Paul says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor, the chesed, the charis, the grace bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let me just say, I know that in large part, the reason I have gotten through this season is because of your prayers. The reason Rick and Les and all of us, my wife, our staff, our shepherds, have been able to go through this season is because of you and your prayers to our Father for us. So let me just say thank you. I do not know what my life would look like if it weren't for you. I, I thank God for you guys. Thank you so much, and please don't let up on the prayers. Know that it's mutual, and we're, praying, we're all praying together. It's not like the fellowship is praying for the leadership. We're all level at the foot of the cross, and we're all praying together for each other. Keep on pressing into prayer. As we suffer the afflictions that have been appointed for each of us, remember that, our afflictions are appointed to us, Philippians 1, 29 through 30. We remember that if we are heirs, inheritors of God's glory as his children, that also means suffering and afflictions, again, are part and parcel of this way that Jesus has called us to follow. And when we do, when we follow, when we embrace the sufferings and afflictions because of our service and relationship to Christ, it's then we get to experience the profundity of God's comfort, of Christ's comfort, comfort in affliction. If you felt confused and crushed in this last year, challenged in every way you can think of, Remember, you are not alone. You're not alone. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots, mud pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Let me stop. I have been asked on occasion from people I run into Safeway at Starbucks, what do you do? Which is always an interesting conversation. <laughs> I gotta come up with a more creative answer. <laughs> But I have been convicted because often I feel like my response in this season has been, oh, woe is me, I've got it hard. I'm such a hard worker and I care for people and look at how afflicted I am. Jake, come on, man. Wait on the Lord. Let his spirit renew your strength. You got nothing to be sad about, Jake. You're not a victim. You're a victor because you have the comforter. You have the power of God. And I don't say that diminishing what you all are going through or have been going through or will continue to go through because I'm not the Messiah, but I have a relationship with him and so do you. And we know that he's worn everything. He has walked beyond a mile in our shoes. He's walked our shoes until they've fallen off, until his feet were bloodied, hanging on a cross. We need to remember that we have mud pots and it's through the mud pots our bodies, our weak selves, that the power of God will be surpassing our weakness. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Christopher Crawford, if you watch this, you are not abandoned. You are not forsaken. You are a child of God. We've been praying for you here because we pray for each other because children of grace bless others with grace. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, revealed in our body. As people see you suffer because you love Jesus and you follow his word, you will literally manifest Jesus personally and powerfully through you, living incarnationally. And it's not a front, so we're not supposed to be like, oh, I'm a child of God, and man, I, I, I slave for him. And it's also not, everything's pretty and I'm fine because I'm a child of God, I'm untouched. It's being honest. Paul was honest with his affliction, but he constantly walked with a, a sense of joy and comfort presence of purpose. We are sheep. I've said it before. And some, some of us have felt like we've been led to the slaughter by the God we've trusted in. Remember, remember though, he empathizes with us as the perfect high priest. He went to the slaughter. So all of our afflictions will mean something in the end. He went to the slaughter so we don't have to suffer the wrath of God. I want, lastly, to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Would you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4 with me? I'm going to close with this. So, worship team, if you want to come on up. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. <laughs> My Bible subtitled it, Share the Sufferings of Christ. Beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which has come upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Here's a qualification. Make sure, verse 15, that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man in the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. If we suffer, let it be for the right reason. And when we do, let's do it with joy not out of sin or selfishness or foolishness, but for righteousness sake, with our souls entrusted to our faithful creator because we trust that he will do what is right because he works all things together for good for those who love him, whom he has called and purposed and predestined, Romans 8, 28. Do we believe that? Walk in that promise. When Jesus, here's my final thought. When Jesus came down to our world, was it comfortable for him? 
we're, we, we, we hate all the restrictions we've had this year. I'm with you. I'm tired. I'm an asthmatic, and it's no joke. How uncomfortable was it for the Lord God Almighty to confine and restrain himself in human form? What did Jesus come to do so that he could comfort us? He had to suffer, and then he had to die, the most heartbreaking and lonely suffering ever to be accomplished. So if you're watching, you're listening, you're with us this morning, but you haven't personally given your life to Jesus to save you and empower you with his comfort from your sin, there's no time like the present. Would you pray with me? Father of mercies and God of all comfort, I pray that you would show your compassionate mercy on us, that you would comfort us, that your word would not just be ink on pages, but it would be alive and dwelling, that you, Holy Spirit, would comfort us from within so that we can walk with peace that transcends the circumstances we live in currently. If you're listening to this and you want that comfort and you know you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then pray this simple prayer after me. Lord, God of heaven and earth, I'm a sinner. I recognize and admit that I need forgiveness. I need a rescue. And all that I suffer and deal with is because of my sin and the sin of this world. But I trust what you've done, Jesus. You died on the cross. You were buried and you rose again on the third day to give me life. And so I admit my need for you to save me. And I ask you now to be the Lord of my life because you are the savior of my soul. Take my life. Here I am. I love you. Have all of me because you've given all of you to me. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to walk in the joy in the powerful comfort of the God of the universe so that your light might shine through your people into this dark world that so needs your comfort. Help us to walk with joy and peace in your name. Amen.